Last week, we kicked off a new series called Stuff Christians Do. Stuff Christians Do. And we're focusing on some core, fundamental, spiritual practices that we do together as a church. And these, these practices are foundational to our lives as Christians. And what makes them powerful is they're not just sort of mindless rituals that we do. But we, when we do these things, what we get to do is sort of come against, we, we, uh, the, these are culturally subversive declarations of the way of the kingdom that come against the way of the world. So I hope this, this series is being a blessing for you. As we talked about last week, another word that we, we use for these sort of practices is liturgy. Now, what is liturgy? Because I've gotten some questions about that. Liturgy, because that means different things to different people. Simply this, liturgy is the communal practices that help shape our identity and reinforce our values. They're the practices that shape our identity and reinforce the values. And we've noticed liturgy happens in the church and outside the church. It happens at the ball game. It happens everywhere you go. There is a liturgy that we are a part of. And every congregation, it turns out, has a liturgy. There are some congregations that uh, the liturgy can be very visible. You know, we think of those as like high church. You might have, you know, when you were a child, you might have went to one of these congregations with very visible liturgy, Episcopal or Lutheran or something like that. In fact, we call those churches liturgical churches for that very reason, just because the liturgy is kind of front and center. Other churches, the liturgy can be kind of subtle, more like, like a rhythm that flows in the background. Exhibit A, right here. So that's sort of what we would think of as our liturgies. But liturgies are all around us. And liturgies are also the spiritual practices that you do at home. They're the practices and the disciplines you do when you get up in the morning if you have a prayer time. That's your, that's your time. That's your practice. It's a discipline. If you uh, have a little family devotional in the evenings or something like that, if you pray before your meals, those are liturgies. Bible reading. Liturgies, uh, they fill the everyday life of every human being, whether you're a Christian or not. They're all around us. And while some of these customs that even that we see in the world can be beneficial or at least harmless, some of the liturgies of the world are absolutely toxic to the soul. And so we have the opportunity through these practices uh, to subvert the toxic liturgies of, of our culture through the spiritual practices that are established in Scripture. Uh, one scholar, uh, James K.A. Smith, he says, Christian worship, in other words, the stuff Christians do, functions as a counterformation to the misformation. I love that, the counterformation to the misformation of secular liturgies into which we are thrown from an early age. In other words, these are the waters we just swim in, right? These are the waters we swim in. It's like a fish don't know he's wet. You didn't know you were a liturgical person, right? Because these are the waters we, were just, we swim in. We are born into it. So here's the idea. Here's the big idea of this series, is that whether you call them spiritual disciplines or practices or rhythms or habits or liturgies or whatever makes you happy, these things form and shape us. Make no mistake, these things form and shape us. Um, liturgy does not leave you unchanged. Whatever it is that you do uh, as, as a practice, the, uh, the, they're spirit, spiritual disciplines, and God uses these spiritual disciplines to disciple us, right? The same root word. God uses spiritual disciplines to disciple us. And we're going to discover how this happens in a couple weeks through praise and worship. When we come together to sing in the mornings, Mel's going to be preaching that one. I'm excited about that. Uh, we're going to be talking about the taking of communion. What's really going on in communion? That's going to be powerful, I'm telling you. Last week, we looked at water baptism. And this morning, we're going to look at the powerful practice of generosity.
how generosity just absolutely subverts so many of the toxic liturgies of our world, especially the economic liturgies and those cycles of our world, right? So generosity, amen. I can sense your excitement is just pouring off of you. Calm down, everybody. Calm down, all right? Just easy, easy. We're going to start in Luke. It's going to be glorious, ladies and gentlemen. Chapter 12, you can follow along. Luke chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, man, who appointed you to be a judge, me to be a judge or arbiter between you? It already sounds like he has put Jesus in a bad mood. I don't really know the tone of voice Jesus used when he says, man, but that just sounds like you probably got off on the wrong foot with Jesus. He's not having any of this taken sides business. Then Jesus said to him, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of what? Greed. Greed. Could there be a more fitting word for our 21st century world? He says, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So Jesus sees what's going on here with this particular man. He's, this guy comes to him, and Jesus can tell this is not just like some, you know, instance of injustice. He's wanting Jesus to weigh in on and, you know, and fix the problem. He recognizes this brother's just being greedy. And he's trying to get Jesus to take side, and Jesus, of course, not a fan of that. And so he tells a parable. Jesus says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So note right there, this man in this parable is already rich. He's a rich man who then gets an abundant harvest. Very important point. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, if you're in the first century and you're listening to this parable Jesus is teaching, you're a good Jewish person, already what would jump out to you as very absurd about this as a Jewish person is that this rich man doesn't know what to do with his excess harvest, right? Why? Because this is very clearly spelled out in Scripture. This is, this is something clearly dictated based on Jewish Scripture, based on, based on Jewish communal tradition, what you did. This was all long established. So as a wealthy person uh, in, in Israel at the time, you would be in touch with the needs of your community. Everybody's working together. You're always in touch with what's going on. And there were certain expectations long established for a thousand years based on God's law of how you would handle your wealth and, and your extra profits, what you would do. So to the people listening to this story, this guy already sounds ridiculous for not knowing what he should do, right? And so the family of the rich guy knows what he should do. The community of the rich guy knows what he should do. His friends know what he should do. Everybody knows what he should do. And that is what? Give, yeah. Give, give, give out of his, this, this excess. Because he's already rich. He has more than he needs. And so the whole story is based on the absurdity of a guy who's so out of touch with his community. He's acting like this island of one who just lives in the world all by himself. Um, what should I do with my excess wealth? And notice when he talks what, all the I, my language. I, my, it's all a lot of, okay. Verse 18. Then he said, this is what I'll do, said the committee of one. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. Just makes sense. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. So it's like the dream of retirement, isn't it? Right? 
But God said to him, you fool. Okay, anytime God says you're a fool, that's probably a bad thing too. Because fool, back in the, this language, back in the early uh, ancient Near East here, fool is not just saying you're ignorant, you don't understand something, you're mistaken. Fool means you lack discernment. It was one of the, like, just the highest, ter- most terrible things you could say to somebody. You lack discernment, you lack wisdom, you lack integrity. There's something wrong with you. And God says, this night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And then Jesus ends with the very uplifting, this is how it'll be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So Jesus is saying, not only is this man's wealth in this parable a blessing, not only is his wealth a blessing, that that he should know what to do with his abundance here. It's not just that his crops are a gift from God, but he's pointing out his very life is a gift that this man is taking for granted. His life is a gift, and now that is being demanded back. Keep in mind, too, this is a parable. This isn't an actual story of God killing somebody because they built a barn. This is a parable to tell us God's attitude towards our generosity versus our stinginess. Now, all of that was to set the stage for what we want to talk about today, this mindset that we see in the world. Um, The rich man in this parable illustrates this so brilliantly. When we talk about money in the church immediately, and I get it, it is awkward and cringy. It just is. and it can be that way because, let's admit it, the church has not always, and I mean the church worldwide, has not always had a great job in its relationship with money. And very often in churches today, when we get to the subject of money, it's, uh, it, it kind of could go in two different directions. One is we denounce it as evil, right? Money's just bad. It's bad. Tell everybody, you know, take a vow of poverty. Or you know, we can go to the other, we can swing the other way and just glorify it. Like money is like the ultimate sign of your spirituality and your favor with God, right? And so you should be rich. And if you have enough faith, you'll be really, really rich. And by the way, give it, you know, a bunch of it to us and God will make you even more rich and more healthy and you'll live forever and lose weight and have fuller, thicker hair. Um, You know, just if you do this. What we're out after today is not getting you to get rich uh, by giving more money to the church. Just laying that out there. We've already taken the offering. See, we're not going to take a second one. So pressure's off. What we want to do today is discover the root of greed and fear that is at the heart of the systems of this world. The, the way the world, its relationship with money. And we want to look at how we as Christians through the practice of generosity, through the lifestyle of generosity, we get to subvert that toxic script that exists all around us, okay? We're going to call that relationship that the world has with money the liturgy of consumerism. All right, this is a liturgy that is all around us. We swim in it, right? We're the fish in the sea. We don't even know we're wet. It's just, it's all around us. We're very familiar with this. We could also call this the liturgy of lack because this cultural liturgy assumes that I need more. I need more. Things are never enough. So the liturgy of consumerism, ladies and gentlemen, let's talk a little bit about it. Number one, it focuses always on individual self-fulfillment and self-interest. In modern economic theory, 
and, and I, back when I was a young man, I went to business school because I thought that's what I want to do with my life. And so I, I went to business school, got an MBA, and I learned there that modern economic theory is, uh, especially the job of, of marketing, is to create needs where there did not exist one, to, to create a need, and then fill those needs with products. Does that make sense? We want to create a need and then fill those needs with products. And we've been, and they're in the most successful companies today are those companies that have done that really well. We existed, human beings, for like 200,000 years or whatever without smartphones. But now, I have to have a smartphone, right? Someone came along, Steve Jobs or whoever, and said, like, we need to create this need for a smartphone. And then, surprise, just coincidence, we happen to have one for you. We lived for 20,000 years without uh, needing $6 coffee. But someone came along and said, you need a $6 coffee every morning on the way to work. And wow, what a blessing. There's a company that provides that on my way. There's two of them on my way to here to the church every morning. They provide $6 coffee. It's amazing. So this is, this is modern economics, modern um, marketing. And then here's your job. Your job as a cog in this system, as an individual, uh, is to be defined by uh, what you produce and what you consume. That's your, that's your value. The value of every person can be reduced to their ability to produce stuff, to sell, or to buy something that's being produced. That's your value. And, so, and it's, it's amazing. You can commodify anything in this world, right? Even in the Christian world, Christianity, if you stamp a cross or a fish on it, uh, we can sell it as a Christian pin or a Christian potpourri. And that's a real thing. And it smells amazing. It smells like generosity. I didn't know generosity. Uh, it smells like uh, gentleness. It doesn't, I didn't know gentleness had a smell, but it does. It smells kind of clovey. Um, uh, it's amazing. The consumer liturgy, it fosters this consumer mindset, which is the unhindered pursuit of more. The fact that the rich man in this story, he looks around and he says, yep, I need more. I need more. I need a bigger space to handle more stuff. And that's something we totally know, right? I mean, we understand that. That's what we do. And there's barely any guilt. We don't feel really much guilt about it because, again, it's the water we swim in, folks. And shockingly, this is in the church as well. Now, here's the problem, is this consumer liturgy that we live with it promises a, a better world where everybody's happy and everybody's getting richer every day. But at what cost? Let's look at the cost. Number four, it, it results in perpetual dissatisfaction. Perpetual dissatisfaction, it means we never feel rich, no matter how rich we are. We never feel rich. So I, can, I could show you stats. Whatever you're making, I could show you stats uh, of, you know, if you're making 20 or 40 or 50 or $100,000 a year, of where that places you in the world, like the, the pinnacle that that places you, whatever it is you make, and it won't matter to you. That wouldn't matter to you because nobody is going to say, yeah, I feel rich, right? I've been to rich people's houses, and they'll still talk about the better house down the street. It's true. I, I, I have people come to my house and say, you have a nice house, and I think, Meh, I mean, my neighbor's is way nicer. It's just, it's just like in us. It, it, I, you know, we can't help it. We just live in this water of always, always looking and wanting and comparing. Number five, it always keeps us 
depersonalized and dehumanized. Because in this system, value is not inherent to people. Your value isn't because you're a human being. You're a priceless image bearer of God. No, no, no. Value is equal to usefulness. Your value is based on how useful are you? Are, are you buying stuff to help the economy or are you making stuff to help the economy? That's your value. So when I was in the business world uh, I, and I, I would go, I would have these things, you know, they called networking, which is like uh, my personality type is like the worst. I hated that so much. You know, I just want to go hide in the corner. But you go and network and, and we're just looking for people who can help my career. That's what you do at those things. You're looking for people who can help you. Think about, I was thinking the other day, I saw a news report about um, some laws that were being passed in different countries. There's countries in the, and this is like in the modern Western world, uh, some in Europe and even some states in America, where we are seeing laws passed that allow the euthanizing of kids who were born with certain conditions. You know, kids like Down syndrome or something like that. They're born with Down syndrome, well, they're, those people aren't marketable. They're not going to produce anything for our, for our world. So their value is entirely based on what they contribute to society instead of seeing them, of course, as a priceless image bearer of the divine God. Now, here's something we got to touch on because we can talk about the big bad world out there, but this, is, this whole liturgy of consumerism is not just out there in the big bad world. It infects the church. Because the church is made of people who live, who are, live in this world. And so this is going to be really quick. And I just want to, uh, I, I was just listening to a few things that I've been guilty of. I'm not slamming other churches. This, I'm, I'm slamming me. Uh, because this is how consumerism has infected the church and, and in, infected me. Number one, I used to understand God primarily as a consumer product. I can look back and realize that now. Right? So... The idea is that, you know, there's a God-shaped hole in my heart. Money can't fill it. Drugs can't fill it. Sex can't fill it. Rock and roll kind of fills it, but not all the way. And God comes along, and he, he comes into your life, and he takes all the anxiety and the loneliness and insecurity away, and he just fills you up with happiness, and your life is great. And I realized now, oh, that's just marketing God as a good consumer product. I recognize that from my classes. <laughs> I recognize that. It's like an infomercial for Jesus, right? Here's Jesus and some steak knives. And that's not all. The gospel is a transaction and not a gift. And so the gospel becomes this this weird thing where the insinuation is I've got to pay it back, right? Like God gave you this really generous thing, guys. You've got to pay this back. It's somehow this credit loan. I've been giving it all up front. But then I have to pay it back with my righteousness over time or something like that. The church, this is a big one. This is a big one, guys. The church is a vendor of religious goods and services. And it is in competition with other churches for market share. When you go to a, a you know, kind of telling inside info here. When you go to a pastor's conference, which I've been to, the only pastors they allow up on the platform are the ones that have the most religious customers. And then they charge you for telling you the secret to their growth. It's very strange and icky and frustrating. Number four, 
Community groups often are presented as a spiritual buffet of programs based on people who are just like you. When we lived in Austin, my wife and I lived in Austin, often on the weekends we'd come home to our church, which we loved our church. Um, but sometimes we would stay in town and, went, and we'd visit a couple different churches while we stayed in Austin. And one of them was a kind of a big mega church. And, uh, and it, I mean, the preaching was great. It was a good mega church. But I just noticed it was interesting the kind of programs that were offered. You started to see a pattern in the programs that were offered. It was basically like a shopping mall. And so we had programs for every single segment of the target audience. If you're single in your 20s, uh, there's a group for you. If, if you're single in your 30s, there's a group for you. If you're single in your 40s, there's a group for you. If you're single in your 50s and 60s, we lumped those together, there's a group for you, right? Um, if you're if young marrieds, newly marrieds, pre-marrieds, married with children, married with young children, empty nesters, married with teenage children, I mean, it was nothing but affinity groups. And the implication was what, what you need in life because what, you what it is is what you really want. What you need in life are people just like you. You don't need to learn from anybody else, right? Because newly married people, they need more newly married people to be around because that's where the wisdom is, right? <laughs> and what's often missing in, in the mega model is the church coming together like a family. That's the picture we see in the New Testament, right? It's like, all of the family, the young and olds and the weird aunts and uncles, were all sitting around the table. It's the family of God, the table of God, the household of God, the body of Christ, the hands and the feet and the knees and the elbows, right? We're all coming together. That's why we love our home life groups. We specifically, consciously designed home life groups to be where everybody comes together, you know, married, singles, young, old, middle-aged, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, we need you at the table because you're bringing something that I don't have. As I got into ministry, I was told by the best authors, the church growth experts, that to plant a church, you identify your target audience, and then you brand yourself to their felt needs. Right? This is wisdom straight from Wall Street. And it just struck, it strikes me as I read the, the Bible, in Acts, they grew the church by preaching the gospel. It seems a little different. They preached the gospel and they took care of each other. When I was beginning in ministry, the message from all the church growth experts, and I was trying to get my hands on all this stuff, you know, because I don't know what to do. And the message was, listen, be careful what you preach, because you can't alienate your big givers. That's, cla that's classy, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's not exactly a courageous Christ-like mindset. And again, I'm not ragging on other churches. This is towards me. This is the stuff that I have fallen for and fallen into and had to fight war against, right? And of course, what does that lead to? That's going to lead to Christians who adopt the same attitude when they pick a church that they see churches treating the people with. And that's shopping. It's a shopper's mindset towards picking a church. So why wouldn't you look for a church? If you live in this world, this this liturgy of consumerism, why wouldn't you look for a church that best produces the goods and services that you desire in the best, most efficient, most entertaining way. I mean, just, that just makes sense. And so if the church treats its members like giving units instead of human beings, of course church members are going to treat the church right back in that same way. And that means 
Pastor, I'm here today, but don't count on me being part of your family tomorrow unless you, you know, keep up the quality product I've come to expect. Say all the stuff that makes me feel good. You know, affirms all the choices I've already made. That's, that's what I'm going to come to. Any of this sound familiar? This isn't you, obviously. These are all the other people out there because you're perfect and wonderful. But this should sound familiar to us, right? Because this is something that's kind of that icky thing that's probably underneath the surface. For all of us, we see it, we feel it, we know it's out there. That liturgy of consumerism, which is actually based on a fear of lack. That's what it is. That I, it's a fear that I am always missing out. There's always something more. And so I got to grab all I can right now. Well, all of that is really, really depressing. Uh, so let's go back and read some words of Jesus because he's going he's gonna to bless us. Uh, Jesus, unsurprisingly, has a different view on all this, a different path for us to live. So I'm going to read this text. Now be warned. You're going re- to recognize this text. And this is the most trivialized, airbrushed, Instagram meme, precious moments text that anybody, we all have heard. So you're going to hear this text. You're going to want to barf. And then we're going to talk about what Jesus really means in here. And we're going to, then you're going to be like, oh, of course Jesus says this. Okay, here we go. Luke chapter 12. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or, what, or your body, what you will wear. For life is more important than food. That's what Melissa keeps telling me. The body, more important than clothes. Now listen to this. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds, ladies and gentlemen? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? So what is he, what is he speaking against? He's speaking against worry. Who, who have you been worrying? Since you cannot do this little thing, how do you wor- why do you worry about the rest? Now, you've heard this passage before, most of you, I'm sure. Uh, and you've been in church for any length of time. You know this passage, and we're all kind of like, yep, of course Jesus says this. Don't worry. Verse 27, he says, Consider the wildflowers and how they grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows you need them. But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you. Okay. Now, if you're like me, you've read this before, and you probably have thought to yourself, what Jesus is saying to us is, look how God takes care of birds and, and flowers, and if you put your trust in him, he'll take care of you the same way, right? It looks like that's what he's saying at first glance, but actually that's not what he's saying. He's not pointing out the security of birds and flowers. Jesus lived in a world where birds were used as offerings. People were eating birds left and right, right? And he just said in the, in the passage right before, the grass is here today and tomorrow gets thrown into the fire. So he's not talking about things that don't get hurt. He's not talking about the security of birds and flowers. He's talking about the carefreeness 
of birds and flowers. That's because because birds and flowers don't treasure things that disappear. Birds and flowers can live without worry. That's the idea. Jesus goes into this further. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you what? A kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will never wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes nor near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart. Your heart's going to follow. You put your treasure somewhere, your heart's going to follow it, right? So what's he saying? He's saying if you treasure things that you can lose, your life is going to be full of worry. All right? It doesn't make you an evil person. It just makes you human. It's just the truth. If you treasure your youth, how can you not help but fear aging? If you treasure your 401k, how can you not help but be terrified of what the economy is doing next? If you treasure your reputation, how can you help but not fear criticism? You're going to fear it. So Jesus is saying, he's not saying, look at the flowers. Don't worry, guys. Nothing bad ever happens to flowers. As if he doesn't know that the people he's talking to are going to be persecuted for their faith. Of course he knew this. His point, rather, is his people should treasure his kingdom. Because his kingdom isn't affected by pandemics. His kingdom isn't affected by the economy. His kingdom isn't affected by 401ks and wars with China and all this kind of stuff. His kingdom isn't affected by those things. And if you treasure his kingdom, well, then you don't have to be afraid. He's not saying the bad things don't happen, because they do, all over the place. He's saying that if you treasure rightly, when they happen, it won't matter as much. So Jesus gives us another way of stepping into what we could call the liturgy of generosity, the liturgy of plenty. Jesus invites us through this kind of lifestyle to subvert that liturgy of consumerism that we know so well, that liturgy of lack, And we do it through our active participation in generosity. Now, what are the truths? Let's look at the truths embedded in God's worldview, in His kingdom. They look a little different than the world's liturgy. Number one, everything I have is a gift. That's now my attitude toward everything. Everything I have is a gift. Even the ability to work and earn money in Deuteronomy is called a gift. So you're like, well, I earned that. But your ability to earn that is a gift. When you think about that next breath, you have no control over that. It seems to just be happening. Praise the Lord. That's a gift. Your next heartbeat, your ability to see or hear, your body's ability to repair itself when it gets sick, that's a gift, right? None of that is under our control. So the posture of a kingdom person is the posture of we receive everything with joy, not as some entitled consumer, but as a gift. Waking up this morning is a gift. The fact that my car started, that I was able to get that coffee on the way here, that is a gift. That I got to come here and worship with you guys today, that is a gift. That is a priceless gift to me. It's all a gift. The liturgy of generosity means that for me, real life, is not found in accumulating things, but in sacrificially loving others. 
Real life, that Zoe life, is found in, in relationships. It means that worth and value are not ascribed by the market. They are inherent to people. So our worth and our value is not based on how pretty someone is or how smart someone is or how productive they are. Not at all. It doesn't matter if a person is, by the world's standard, useful or not. No life can be monetized in the kingdom. All image bearers are worthy of infinite dignity and value and love. Number four, Dallas Willard, uh, the great writer, he had this saying that always challenged me whenever he would say it, when he, and it was a quote from his book, Divine Conspiracy. And this quote was this, Jesus brings us the assurance that the universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Jesus brings the assurance that the universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. I would read that, and I would hear him say that several times, and that always kind of froze me in place a little bit because the world does not often feel like a very safe place. But the story of Jesus tells us that you are safe in God's world. How? How can we say that? Because, guys, the worst thing that can happen to you will happen. You're going to die. I'm going to die. And God's word has conquered death. Amen. So you're safe, Amen. right? So all of this invites us into this story that is not one of guarding and defending and scraping and comparing and wanting more, but of plenty, of gratitude for all that God has done for me and all the, the lies and the bondage that he is freeing me from. And that... I recognize that's probably, for most of us, an ongoing process. Every day, he continues to free us from more of that, just strip away all of that toxic liturgy that the world has heaped on us. Which is why, so uh, this forces us to have really wide open eyes as to why. Why would this topic be so important to Jesus and the New Testament writers and the early church? As much as we'd like to ignore the subject of money because it's awkward, and the American church has had this like really problematic and awkward relationship with money. There's no doubt about it. But why does Jesus keep coming back to it in his ministry so that we can't ignore it? Why does the New Testament church enthusiastically preach about money and generosity, and they practice it? One reason I think it's so important for us that we, that we acknowledge it and we talk about it is because we do swim in these waters that teach us that my life is all about accumulating more possessions. And so there has to be some place like this where that is not happening. There has to be some place where I, I get to relinquish control. I get to crucify my flesh and relinquish control over where every dollar is spent or how much return I'm getting on my investment. There has to be a place where I invest in community, in people who can't pay me back, and invest tangibly, where I actually learn to treasure the things of the kingdom by placing my treasure into the kingdom. Now, just real quick, 
One subject we didn't get into today, I know a lot of people are interested in, is tithing. And we'll talk some more about that in another, another time. But for, ma- for now, let me just say this. Jesus talks about tithing. Jesus talks about tithing, and, and whenever he's talking about tithing, we have to acknowledge he's talking to Jews who were commanded to tithe under the Old Testament law. That's true. And we also have to acknowledge that whenever Paul talks to Gentiles, he never once talks about tithing. Paul talks to Gentiles, he does talk about tithing, not once. But why? Why does Paul never bring up tithing? Because the Christians, they, they don't, it's not that they didn't, weren't expected to be as generous as Jews. It's because the early church was already giving everything. You read them. They're giving everything. Tithing is like redundant, right? Tithing for the early Christian who just came out of, you know, the Jewish law and all that kind of stuff, that would, they would have been like tithing. That's like that tiny amount you give under the law before God opens your eyes to the reality of the kingdom and sets your heart on fire with generosity. You know, so they would say, well, do we tithe? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess at a minimum, sure. But, you know, treating the tithe like we're paying this minimum payment on this outstanding loan is an exercise of missing the point entirely. That's, that's the gospel of Scott right there. That's what I, what I believe. See, generosity, when you get this generosity mindset, it changes everything. It changes everything. So tithing for a Christian is kind of like being nice. Of course you're supposed to be nice, but Jesus calls you to love your enemy, right? So Paul, what does he tell the Gentiles? He, he says, give as you're able. Don't set, in other words, don't set 10% as like the ceiling, like, it's, it, that's your obligation that you have to meet, and you don't have to do anything else. And yes, he says, give whatever you've determined in your heart to give. But Paul, recognize, he's saying this with the expectation that you've been saved. He's not talking to people who haven't been saved. He's talking to people who've joined the church. So he is assuming that your heart has become inflamed with the love and the generosity that Christ has shown the church, that Christ has shown humanity. And so no... I will say this, God is not upstairs, like, keeping score and cursing people who only give 9% instead of 10%, okay? I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus absorbed the curse once and for all. Amen. That's, uh, you just take it from me, God's not cursing anybody. Jesus took care of it. The world, it's a new world. We're in the New Testament. But what His best for you is, is something far more radical and far more supernatural and faithful than, than just stopping at some minimum that the law required. And so I just want to encourage you to trust God enough, trust God enough to like step into a whole new way of thinking about generosity, a whole new thing. God's not, he's not setting the law and you got to do this or I want to come get you. He wants you to experience the fullness of the kingdom. And I'll tell you, the things that I've learned is I have personally uh, practiced this. They have been some of the most important lessons um, in my relationship with Jesus. And so on the one hand, yes, we acknowledge uh, all the awful, totally gross ways that we've seen religious people abuse and, and manipulate each other into giving money. But on the other hand, money is the thing that wars most for our hearts, is it not? Is anybody going to pretend that's not true? It is the thing we want to hold on to. God knows that. He's your father. He loves you. He knows how you tick. He created you. 
And so we have to talk about it. Jesus talked about it. And so, and, and, and we have to at least have a place like this where we, that toxic liturgy of consumerism is subverted. And so for, that's what this represents for us. It, it's not an obligation. It's a gift. It is a privilege. It is a privilege. And that's why Paul says, listen, God isn't interested in begrudging people. He's interested in people who do this joyfully. So why do we practice generosity? We practice it because we're fighting for our freedom. I love the way Brenda, Brenda said that, right? God could just, he could handle everything. He's got all the money. God doesn't need your money. But what good does that do for us? I love that. We're fighting for our freedom because giving our money is one of the most, let's face it, it's one of the most visceral, flesh-crucifying, greed-crucifying ways we have of declaring our allegiance to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, we bless you. Oh, thank you, God, for this. These are hard topics, and we thank you, Lord God, that you are speaking. Your Holy Spirit is speaking to us. You're cutting through all of the junk that we've experienced before, all the cynicism and suspicion and fear to speak to us. We thank you, Lord God. We want to be people, Lord, who live with just such gratitude, who see everything as a gift, people who look around with eyes of faith to see that this is your good world and we are indeed safe. Come what may, we are safe. Father, uh, this grates against the, the liturgies of our world and sometimes even the teachings of our church, Lord God. So we need the power of your spirit to break through those blinders, Lord God, so we can see what's really going on, the kind of God you really are like, that we might live faithfully and courageously and generously in these times. We love you, Jesus. All God's people said, amen. Will you stand to your feet if you can this morning as our prayer partners are coming forward? If there's anything that we can pray with you about, we invite you to come forward. Let these guys stand with you in faith. Let them know your need. And uh, they would love to pray with you. They would love to pray. Whatever's going on in your life, they would love to pray with you. There's other ways you can also uh, text us or email us or call us or let us know what's going on because we love to get a whole prayer chain of people praying for, for your needs. Praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance and pour out his mercy to you in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you. Amen.